to the Emerald City Sportscast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, analysis, and opinions from Dan and his guests on the Mariners, Seahawks, Kraken, and more. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Emerald City Sportscast. I am Dan Viennes. This is episode 28 of this version of the podcast. Welcome back to any of you who have listened in the past or to my old listeners of the Dan Cave podcast. We're going to start with this. First, uh, what we're going to focus on in this episode is, because it's the new year, happy new year, everybody. Hope your holidays were safe and that you've been able to dodge COVID so far, Omicron, whatever the latest variant is, um, and that you're all happy and healthy and getting off to a great start for 2022, which will certainly be better than 2021. I know we said that. I know we said this exact same thing a year ago, Uh, but it sure feels like we're trending that direction uh, and better things lie ahead. And so I'm going to take that idea and apply it to the three major sports teams that I talk about mostly on this podcast. We're going to, we're going to ask the question of what's in store in 2022 for the Seahawks, Mariners, and Cougs. We're not going to get into the crack it real, cracking real deep right now. And we're not going to get into the Huskies because, well, you know why. Um, But first, (laughs) where the hell have I been? Let me just answer that question. So I knew it had been a while since I'd done a show. But until I started uh, putting this together today, I didn't realize exactly how long it would be. I went back into into Anchor and... um, to identify what what the episode number would be and saw that it, October 25th was the last time I did a show. Um, and throughout 2021, I wasn't exactly knocking them out on a weekly basis as I had more often in the past. Um, you know the reasons for some of that. Some of it was related to what was happening on the field with our sports teams. And uh, some of it was moving and, and having to set the new studio up and all of that. But what's happened since October 25th is, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I got really sick right after the 25th. It was right at the beginning of November. Really sick. Like, not COVID, but it was that other thing that maybe some of you caught. I know it was really going around in my workplace. A lot of people that I knew caught it. Um, I'm one of those stubborn people that just kind of tries to grind through things. So I never went to the my doctor to see what it was, but I know there were a couple of things flying around at that time, uh, tested negative for COVID, but it was, it was a flu or, um, some sort of respiratory flu that, uh, kicked my butt for about a week. I only missed one day at work, uh, as soon as I found out that, that it, it wasn't COVID, um, but really kicked my butt for about a week. It kind of felt like a sinus infection. And then it's, and then it just settled decided to just move into my chest area, my lungs, and just hang out for like two months. So um, not only did I feel like crap for the first part of that and just wanted to rest and relax, and but I, I lost my voice. My voice has just now in the last week returned to close to 100% normal. Even as recently as 10 days ago, I was doing a voiceover order and while it was acceptable to the client, I could hear there was about a 10 or 20% variance where I could I could still feel it kind of rattling around in my chest. And and it wasn't it wasn't my voice. And it's really wreaked havoc with singing in the car. Like my singing in the car voice was just shot. Um it's it's close to back to normal now. So that that was part of it as well. And then I had some Equipment failures on top of that, my uh, my Rodecaster Pro, the mixer that I use to do this show live um, so that all I have to do is post it afterwards, just died after 14 months, just stopped working, wouldn't power up. Um, fortunately, I had a two-year warranty on it, um, so it's off somewhere, shipped it somewhere, they say like somewhere between two and a thousand weeks, I think, is what they estimated it would take to fix it. So um, so I probably won't be doing the live video streams of, of the show until I get that back because I have to kind of piece this together uh, the old school way um, in a multi-track and, and post-produce the, uh, the intro and the outro and things like that. So 
Um, and then there was kind of what was happening on the field. By the time my voice got to the point where I could have, I could have grinded through some shows, and and maybe some of you heard me hop on with the Seahawks Playbook podcast um, with Keith Myers while Bill Alvstad was out uh, mending from back surgery. Good to hear you're doing well, Bill. Glad to have you back. Uh, if you go back and listen to that episode, you can tell that I wasn't 100 there either. Um, but I didn't have to carry the conversation, and so I, I could have done some shows then. But by that point. You know, the season kind of became what it what it was. And uh, wasn't really sure. There wasn't a whole lot I could add to the conversation at that point um, that couldn't be had later. And that's where we are today. So that's where I've been. So uh, thanks for checking back in, and it's good to be back. Um, not on the air. I was going to say on the air, but it's good to be back on the mic. We're going to start with the Seahawks. Um Let's just recap where they are, right? As they get ready to head to Arizona and play the Cardinals, hopefully play a little spoiler for them. Um, first time ever playing a Week 17 regular season game. I don't know about you, but it's still still trying to wrap my head around that. It still feels really strange. Like, like my football biological clock is completely confused. And uh, it just doesn't feel right. I I literally have to keep reminding myself that there's a game this Sunday. Um, so that's happening. But where they stand today, six and ten. Nobody saw that coming. Um, except, do you remember at the beginning of the season when ESPN's computer projections had the Seahawks finishing? I want to say it was like five and twelve. Might have been worse than that. They lost like their first eight of the season, and then we all laughed at that. Uh, I don't think that computer projection had Russell Wilson breaking his finger, but it's just kind of funny to think about how we scoffed at that uh, four months ago. Uh, they are 17th in the NFL in points per game scored on offense. It's much lower than we thought it would be, certainly. 10th in points per game allowed. When we look at DVOA, they're 7 on offense, 25 on defense. DVOA takes everything into account, and it takes situations um, of how successful they are at certain plays in certain situations against other teams in their rankings. Uh, so it takes the yards per game. Seahawks are near the bottom of the league in yards allowed, but they've done really well in the red zone and limiting teams' points. I think, um, I think the game against the Bears was the first game... I want to say in about eight weeks that, that a team had scored more than their season average. So the defense has kept them in games. Tenth in the league in points allowed. In total DVOA, the Seahawks are 12th. Are you surprised that they're that high? I was. They are ahead of teams in total team DVOA, like the Cincinnati Bengals and Tennessee Titans, who are both division winners eight of those losses are by 10 points or less five of those losses are by three points or less uh and i believe two losses in overtime they lost six of seven during the stretch where wilson got hurt and then he came back and wasn't himself for a few weeks which he even now has admitted that the finger wasn't anywhere near 100%. Uh, the one win in that time was the home Jacksonville win, sandwiched between two three-game losing streaks. Uh, three of their six wins against playoff teams, two against the 49ers, of course, who were 9-7 and seven, playing for a playoff spot, and the other one uh, opening day against the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, where do they stand as far as organizational things, things off the field, the state of the organization? Well, there have been reports in the last three, four weeks that Russell Wilson will ask for a trade in the offseason, that league sources think he wants to move on, that his agent has a new list of teams that he would be willing to go to and waive his no-trade clause, that Jody Allen, the owner who we don't hear anything from, isn't happy with the direction of the team and doesn't think it's a one-year problem. So the drama has already kind of started. 
and you can see it certainly on social media and Twitter, because we went through this last year. Once Russell Wilson went on the Dan Patrick show and said he, he wanted to see some changes, and, um, and then that started all the trade speculation. We've been through this before. And we knew this was going to happen again. If you listen to our preseason show, the, the combination show that we did live at Aussies with Bill and Keith from the Seahawks Playbook podcast, we all agreed that if things went really well during the season, that we might not have to revisit this drama. But if things went off the rails, we'd be right back here again. Certainly sitting at 6-10 and 10 with one to play qualifies as off the rails, doesn't it? The wild card in all of this is we don't know anything about Jody Allen. We don't know how she operates or what she does. We do know that she's fired the GM and the head coach and made some changes with the Portland Trailblazers. But we were also led to, to believe that basketball is more of her passion. She, that she doesn't care in, as much about football. Uh, there was a report on Oregon Live this week. Um, I hope I get his name right. I'm not looking at it. John Canzano, I think, uh, does a really nice job covering the Blazers and, and some other Northwest sports stories. And he went into depth about how the structure of the, the Paul Allen Trust is set up and that one of his um, one of the officials with the Portland Trailblazers even kind of corrected some of the some of the verbiage and said Jody Allen's not the owner of the Trailblazers or the Seahawks, but she manages the trust left behind by the death of Paul Allen. We knew exactly where Paul Allen stood. If this if Paul Allen was still alive today, it's fascinating to think about what kind of alternate reality we'd be living in, what kind of reports would be coming out now. I mean, he was a decisive guy. And if he thought there were issues in that organization, changes would be made. You know, remember the report from, I believe it was 2017, from Jay Glazer when, uh, when he said that Pete Carroll was considering retirement. At the time, Paul Allen was off on, a, I think, a hunting trip or some excursion or vacation and had a list ready of big names that he would pursue if Carroll had retired at that time. My recollection is that that list included Jim Harbaugh, Nick Saban, and Bill Cowher. That's how Paul Allen thought. He was a big name guy. But we don't know what Jody Allen is thinking or how much weight to give to that earlier report that she was unhappy. That report came from Pro Football Talk and Mike Florio, who has a dubious history of uh, being correct or incorrect in his reporting. So what does 2022 have in store for the Seahawks, given all the groundwork that I just laid out? Um, here's the way I see it going now. And this is... a. Throughout the year, man, my my opinion on this has changed, as I'm sure maybe some of yours did. When, when you see your team losing six out of seven, not even having a home team advantage anymore, losing to teams they should easily beat, um, I overreact like everybody else. I get emotional. But I think we've seen enough evidence to suggest that there will be some offseason drama. But we should have answers by mid-February, shortly after the Super Bowl. Remember, that's when Wilson kind of went on his little media tour right after the Super Bowl, after watching Tom Brady win his seventh, and he went on the Dan Patrick Show, and that's what started that whole thing. I firmly believe at this point that the only, there's a chance, there's a non-zero chance that Russ isn't a Seahawk next year, but if that happens, I now am convinced that it, it will only happen if Russ wants that to happen. If Russ wants out of Seattle, why would he want out of Seattle? 
you can make a damn good argument the best thing for his career is to stay. But we also have seen Russ's off-field career and endeavors grow and expand over the last five, six years. We know how very, very much he cares about his brand and his legacy. And if, unless Pete Carroll retires, if Russ believes that staying in Seattle, playing for Pete, doesn't help him expand his brand or position himself for his contract two years from now, it wouldn't surprise me at all to think that he is open to new possibilities. A different market, a bigger market, New York. The Giants reportedly are on his new list. A chance to cement more of a legacy. I think Denver was reportedly on the new list. I think, you know, to to go somewhere where there's history and be the next guy. You know, to have someone like John Elway in the building that he respects. We know that on his last two reported lists of teams he would accept a trade to, the New Orleans Saints are on that list. So maybe the prospect of playing for an offensive mind like Sean Payton, who did wonders for Drew Brees, who we know how much Russ respects that man. I could see him wanting that. And I'll say this as well. Because we're already seeing this on social media, because we had gone through this before. A lot of fans are already kind of hunkering down and digging in. This is stupid. It's all fake news. Why would he want out? Why would they want to trade him? There was nothing. Last year was all just all smoke, no fire. That's bullshit. That is bullshit. There was too much reporting from too many respected, hardworking, really professional sources and reporters. Some of whom are tied into the Seahawks organization. Because you better believe when these stories come out, they're usually leaked from one side or the other. Some of the reports came from reporters tied to Russell Wilson's camp as well. There was so much reporting happening. This was a classic case of where there's smoke, there's fire. And I also have it on good authority from someone with knowledge of that front office and that organization that there was major tension at the end of the season last year between the coaching staff and the front office and Russ that a lot of that stuff was real. Now, I do believe it was swept under the carpet. It was fixed. It was repaired sooner than the reports indicated it was. And we don't know where it is now. I I saw someone post on Twitter the other day. um, Russ was mic'd up for the last game, and so there was a little bit where he's he was going around before the game because this is his last home game of the year, and if he does get traded, it'll be the last time we ever see him play a home game. And if that's the last time, he played really well. It was fun to watch. That was a great game. But he was going around hugging people and shaking hands and high-fiving, and, and, and the guy posted on Twitter, he just told Pete, he just said, hey, I love you. He's not going anywhere. Come on. First day being a Russell Wilson fan? Have you not seen the times he's mic'd up? And his brand of motivation and positive talk, the rah-rah stuff, it's so repetitive. It's so contrived and repetitive that you kind of tune it out. The I love you that he gave to Pete Carroll, while it may have been sincere, was kind of what you do New Year's Eve, you're, you're... You're at a party with friends or you're working or whatever, and at the end of the night you go home and you, hey, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. Not unconditional love. It's not I'm never going to want to play for another team or another coach love. That was, that was, hey, man. 
hey, man, thanks. So we'll see. But we're going to find out, I think, pretty quickly. By mid-February, if Russ wants out, he's going to make that note. Maybe not publicly. He might not go on a radio show and say, I want out. But Mark Rogers, his agent, will leak it. And he'll, he'll start to turn that public perception and get those wheels rolling. Now, hopefully, if I'm right, we'll also find out if he wants to stay, and that'll just be cleared up quickly because that leads into what I think is going to happen. I believe at this point, I think everything, they roll it back for another year. I think status quo. I think we come back next year with John Schneider's GM, Pete Carroll's a head coach, Russell Wilson is a quarterback. Now, assistant coaching staff, coordinators, Ken Norton Jr., another story. Don't know. We've seen Pete make some big changes before after bad years. We saw him fire Chris Richard, who came up through the system at USC and came as a young assistant with him to Seattle and work his way up the ranks and become defensive coordinator, fired him. Maybe he makes some of those types of moves. But here's mostly why I think everything's going to Primarily stay intact. Because the excuses are plentiful. And I think if they're in a position where they have to march into Jody Allen's office and convince her to keep it all together one more year, they bring a whiteboard with them or PowerPoint or whatever the hell they're going to use. They can lay out a pretty good case. I already kind of did, right? Russ was hurt for three weeks, four weeks, wasn't right when he came back, lost six out of seven during that stretch, three losses, five points, or, or five losses, three points or fewer, eight of the ten losses by ten points or less. Defense improved throughout the year. Saw some things on the field. I, I think we saw Shane Waldron grow. I was as frustrated, if you've read my Twitter feed, I was as frustrated as him throughout the season as anyone. Real disappointed in... in what was happening on the field there offensively as you know compared to what we thought was going to happen with his hire and his Rams background connections to Sean McVay and what we saw week one in Indy I think there was a lot of growth and I like what I've seen from Shane Walder in the last few weeks I don't think he's going anywhere so there's that fact you know hey we lost a lot of close games that's what the league is like the year before went 12 and 4 won the division if I went back and checked, I bet I bet you could flip all that around. I bet they had five wins of three points or less. I bet at least eight of their 12 wins were by 10 points or less. You just flip it around from what happened this year. That's the NFL. So there's that. Lots of close games. Russ being hurt. Kind of wiped out half the season, right? But I think when you talk more in terms of what could 2022 look like, that's where the argument gets a little more compelling. Hey, there's an opportunity to impact this roster in a positive way where that wasn't really the chance in 2021. Reduced salary cap. We had some big contracts on the books. They didn't have a lot of cap flexibility and they only had three draft picks. None of those draft picks made an made an impact significant impact and they only had enough cap space although they were really creative with it to add solid players rotational pieces depth pieces not the case this year okay we know they don't have a first-round draft pick. That's been talked about ad nauseum because it's the last piece of the Jamal Adams trade to be paid to the Jets. But when you look at what they do have, this will be a very normal draft for the Seahawks. And a little side benefit to being really terrible on the field is you draft higher now, even though they don't have, you know, everyone's lamenting the fact we don't have a top 10 pick now in this draft, which we would have if we wouldn't have made the Jamal Adams trade, right? Well, guess what? They they pick in the top 10 of every other round, except the six. They don't have a six-round pick. So they're going to get a top 40 player. The, the, their first pick will be early on day two. 
And they have an extra pick in the fourth as part of the return from that Jamal Adams trade. They have the Jets pick in the fourth, so they have two of the top ten picks in the fourth round. So right now, currently, as the standings stand, they have the 41st pick in the draft, and then 72, 106, and 109 at the top of the fourth, 150, and then 225 in the seventh round. If you look at the trade draft value chart, the old Gil Brandt chart, Jimmy Johnson chart. Having the 41st, 72nd, 106, and 109th pick lines up pretty closely with what would be a normal scenario for the Seahawks and John Schneider, which is you end up having a good season, you draft near the end of the first round, you trade down into an early day two pick, trade out of the first round, you pick up a, an early fourth in exchange for that. It almost lines up to the point. It's as if he already did that. So there's a chance to make an impact in the draft. And then the other piece of that is cap space available. The Hawks are sixth in the NFL in projected cap space for 2022 in both real cap space and effective cap space, which takes into account signing your top 51 players. And before you go and tell me, because I've heard it already on Twitter, yeah, but that's going to dry up really quickly when they bring guys back, when they do something with Quandre Diggs or Dwayne Brown or DJ Reed or Rashad Penny or Ethan Posick. If you give DK Metcalf a big extension, that's not how that works. It's not how that works. Don't think of cap space in terms of real money. Right now, the, the the real cap space number for the Seahawks is about $56 million available. Don't look at that as, well, if you give Quandre $15 million a year and you give Dwayne Brown another 10 well, there's half of it. That's not how it works. If you sign Quandre Diggs long-term, that first-year cap hit is likely going to be low. If you give DK Metcalf a big extension, that first-year cap hit is likely going to be low. They're going to structure it so his bigger cap hits af- happen after Tyler Lockett's cap hits start to decline on his most recent deal. Don't think of cap space as real dollars. Think of it as flexibility. Having $56 million in cap space, I'm telling you, the Seahawks could do anything they want to this offseason. Anything. And you still, Bobby Wagner stepped up to the podium yesterday and gave an answer to a question about whether he wants to be back in such a way, it was a very clever answer about how he, he, he's a businessman and he'll, he can take care of some business. You could restructure. You don't like Bobby Wagner's $20 million cap hit next year? Okay. Redo it. Give him some cash up front. Add another year to the back end or two years to the back end. Add a void year. You can reduce his number. If Russ decides he wants to stay and they make that announcement in February, I'm not going anywhere, shuts it all down, you could do something with Russ, free up a little more cap space. $56 million, they could do whatever they want. They could go sign Ryan Jensen in free agency if they want to and make him the highest paid center of all time. Now he's in his 30s, so I don't know if he'll command that. But my point is, you can. You could go sign an elite veteran edge rusher and an elite all-pro center, still have money to do those other things and add impact draft picks. So there's that. You can you can improve the roster. There's an opportunity there this year that wasn't there last year. You can also make some continuity arguments. Another year of Shane Waldron working with Russell Wilson coming back healthy. You're also going to play a last place schedule. You can't discount the advantage of that. The NFL loves their parity, and that's one of the rules. So, you know, you'll play your division, and then I'm not sure which division we match up with next year. I think it's the AFC West. Because I remember seeing that we would play the Raiders here, and I was disappointed that it wouldn't be in Vegas. That would have been a fun little Seahawks road trip. So we play the AFC West, not one of the stronger divisions in football. And then there will be a couple other games that we will get scheduled and we'll know the opponents after 
uh, the end of this weekend's games, we're going to play a couple last place teams. We're going to play the Jets or the Jags or the Browns. There's a real opportunity to bounce back there for them next year if you keep it all together. And then if you're, one final thing, and then if your answer is, well, if there is a possibility of trading Russ this year, his his draft or his uh, trade value will never be higher because he has two years left on his deal. That's true. But it doesn't mean he'll have zero draft or trade value next year. Trade him this year, maybe you can get three ones. In fact, um, saw a piece on ESPN the other day where they talked to some NFL executives, or it was in the Athletic actually, about w- what his trade value is, and and one um, one team official w- was quoted as saying that he thinks he'd bring back two first rounders and a player, or maybe three first rounders if you trade him this offseason. So you're not going to get that next offseason, but you're not going to get nothing either. Because while he'll have one year left on his deal, and that's not as valuable to a team, you can franchise him. And any team desperate enough to trade for a veteran quarterback like Russell Wilson and give up significant value is also going to have decided that they'd be willing to franchise tag him at the end of it or work out a new deal. So there is still some value. Plus, the Seahawks will have a first-round pick in 2023. So if if all a team is offering is a is two ones, a 2023 and a 2024, or a one and a couple of twos, well, you can pair that with your one and make some impact that way. So that's what I think is going to happen. Because there's an opportunity to bounce back, because there are some excuses, and by excuses, I don't mean petty excuses. I mean legitimate reasons that you can look at this year's Seahawks team and make a really strong argument that it wasn't that far away from being better. That if Russ hadn't gotten hurt right about the time he got hurt is when they made some of those corrections and some of those improvements on defense. Some better personnel decisions on defense. The cornerback play improved dramatically. And a lot of that core is coming back next year. So I think they stand pat unless Russ wants out and demands it. In the meantime, maybe we can play a little spoiler and kind of ruin the Arizona Cardinals season a little bit. Uh, Speaking of ruining seasons and bad segues, let's talk about the Mariners for a moment. This won't be a very long segment because uh, it's too soon to talk about what's in store for the regular season because we don't know what the roster looks like. Because Rob Manfred is a fucking idiot and... There's been no progress on a labor agreement. No negotiations are scheduled. And the owners have locked out the players. Right before the lockout, it was a fun week to be a Mariner. Trade for Todd Frazier, all-star second baseman. Trade for, or sign Robbie Ray as a free agent. The reigning Cy Young Award winner in the American League. All you idiots that have been saying all year long, that Jerry DePoto was just blowing smoke up your ass and wasn't going to do anything this offseason. Mariners were going to Mariner. Same old Mariners, going to be cheap. They were on the verge of maybe the most exciting offseason we were ever going to have. Now, as it appears, there's a good chance there's a disruption to spring training this year. Friend of the show, Jason Churchill, host of Baseball Things podcast, which you should all be listening to. Uh, told me recently that he thinks owners are willing to miss games. I, after years and years and years and years and years and years of wanting to go to spring training, wanting to see Mariners spring training, needing to go spend some time with my buddy Eric Briggs, friend of the show, um, I've had to cancel all of that because it's so uncertain. I can't book a flight. Can't book a hotel room. Because I don't know if there's going to be a spring training. Once that is over, uh, then the fun begins. And then we can talk about it. And then we'll know what the roster is going to look like. Because I think the Mariners are poised, again, to make a flurry of signings and or trades once they can conduct business again. 
And so just because I just don't want to sort of sweep this one away, what do I think 2022 will look like? That. I think there's a couple of significant roster upgrades coming uh, before the season starts, whenever that will be. My favorites are, and there was a lot of chatter and reporting right before the deadline that the Mariners were trying to get something done with either Trevor Story or Chris Bryant. Talking to some outfielders, looking at Seiya Suzuki. My favorites, my preference would be Chris Bryant, Michael Conforto, and then they need to add one more starting pitcher, and that could be Tyler Anderson. I like the idea of Michael Pineda on a one-year deal. And depending on how much time there is between when whenever a CBA is agreed to and spring training starts or the regular season starts, uh, that'll be a little bit more of a mad scramble. And so where I had I had thought earlier there was there was a lot of talk about maybe the the Mariners trade for starting pitching. You know, if this thing's ha- if this thing happens quickly and there's a tight turnaround before the season starts, maybe an easier move to just pluck one of these guys out of free agency because uh, they're going to be looking maybe for one-year deals again. Why do I like Bryant over Story? I think he's more, even though there's questions about whether he's an everyday third baseman anymore, he's a much more legitimate option at third base. We don't know how Trevor's story would look there on a daily basis. We don't know about that elbow, if it could hold up making that throw across the diamond. And Brian has other versatility, too. He can play other infield spots, and he can play some outfield. So I like that flexibility, and we know Jerry Depoto is looking for that kind of flexibility. It's also a right-handed hitter, which we need to add to the lineup. And after a down year in 2019 or 2020, uh, was phenomenal last year for the Giants. and really kind of helped carry them to their division title. Uh, he's got some pop, and he's one of those guys that I think would be a tremendous addition to the clubhouse. I mean, he's a bulldog, works as hard as anyone, kind of a Mitch Hanniger type. Uh, I think he would he would fit perfectly in that in that clubhouse. And then Michael Conforto, so local kid, bring him home, former All Star, coming off a down year. Let him rebuild some value, sign him to a short term deal, let him come home, left handed hitter, help balance out the lineup, replace Kyle Seeger's power, and look for a bounce back year out of him. He's got some versatility. He can play some center. He's not an everyday center fielder anymore, I don't think. Um, but he can play, I think, all three spots. So we'll check back in on that one. Certainly, once a CBA is reached, that's going to be there's going to be a lot of fun things to talk about in regards to the Seattle Mariners for this year. And then let's finish up with the Cougs. It's been a long time. And looking back over the last few times that I did a show. You know, I, I had to talk about Nick Rolovich and how all that thing that thing went down and what a black eye that was for the program. And regardless, this isn't about how I feel about his decision to immunize or not immunize. This isn't about that. It's about how he handled the whole thing and the light that that cast on our university and our program. Not a good look. Not a good look. It was embarrassing. I don't think I've ever been as excited in my life as a Coug, which dates back to 1984, that I've been this excited about a head coach. I was excited about Mike Price replacing Dennis Erickson because I was really close with Tim Rosenbaugh at the time, and Rosenbaugh liked the hire, thought he was going to be really, thought that he was going to carry on what Erickson had started even though Tim ended up not playing for Price because he declared early. That would have been fun to watch. Um, but but at the time, I didn't know anything about Mike Price other than he was this kind of an eccentric coach from Weber State who did some funny things um, because I was still so disappointed in, in the quick turnaround with Erickson that he had left after promising he wouldn't and all of that. So this one, I've been able to watch it unfold minute by minute. And I've never been as excited about a head coach. What about Mike Leach? Nope. I thought it was I thought it was what we needed at the time. I thought he would revitalize the program and and put a fun offense on the field, but I knew it would come with some issues. 
And I knew he wasn't a particularly likable guy. But Jake Dicker, what have we seen from Jake Dicker in the last two months? First of all, as interim coach, I thought these were feathers in his cap. The way they played at Arizona, I'm sorry, against Arizona at home in shitty weather in Pullman, a total potential trap game. Coming off the Oregon game where they had chances in the second half and were disappointed they couldn't pull off that upset. So at the time, they thought they'd lost out on the opportunity to, to win the North. To come home in, in really, really crappy weather against a bad team, but a team that had been competitive and playing better. That, that had trap game written all over it, and they destroyed the Wildcats and looked phenomenal. That says a lot. And then the Apple Cup, obviously. After we've seen seven straight Cougar teams before that not get up for that game because their head coach didn't respect it, not prepare well for that game, not have a good plan for that game, not come out with the right intensity. And biggest Apple Cup win in in their history. Biggest uh, margin of victory in the Apple Cup ever. That team had moxie. That team had confidence. They were a little bit cocky. Kind of reminded me of that 97 Ryan Leaf team. And then the bowl game. Terrible first half. Horrible first half. Delora clearly wasn't right. It turns out he he was hurt at some point in that first half or maybe before the game started because he just wasn't right, but he was also running for his life. When he got a chance to throw, he was inaccurate. Not like himself. But he was running for his life. Both starting tackles opted out to prepare for the NFL draft. Max Borgie, best player on offense, opted out. Deion McIntosh, rules violation. That offense was a mess in the first half. And then they come out of the locker room, and Jaden Delora is not playing quarterback. And neither is Jared Guarantano because he opted out because he's butthurt that he wasn't the starter, the transfer from the grad transfer from Tennessee. And they didn't want to play Xavier Woods, the true freshman, just wasn't ready yet. So they had to turn to a fourth string walk on. And the way that team came back in that second half and came out and played hard on defense and on offense to have a chance to win, they should have had a better chance to win because with four and a half minutes or so remaining, that that review on the fourth down call was, was brutal. It looked to everybody like the ball was at the marker when he was down. Um, but it's beside the point. That, the winner loss in that game wasn't really relevant to me. The way they came back and battled in that second half said a lot about Jake Dickert. I also like his assistant coaching hires. Really excited about the defensive coordinator from Nevada and couldn't be more excited about Eric Morris. Um, you've heard Eric Briggs and I on the show over the years talk about Cougs and and, and their offensive philosophy. And Eric, um, I, I think to some extent we we both agreed on, on the fact. We were frustrated that Leach ran the pure form of the air raid that he adopted from Hal Mummy and never wavered from it. And that was especially an issue in the Apple Cup because the Huskies knew it was coming. They knew how to defend it. They had the athletes to do it. He would never, he would never stray from that. Yet we've seen so many of his assistant coaches go on and do great things. Right? Dana Holgerson and Art Bryles and Mike Gundy, and some of those guys that would go on and and add other elements to the air raid to update it, modernize it, make it less predictable. That's what Eric Morris has done. He's been an offensive coordinator at some other big programs. Who's a head coach at Incarnate Word. And what they did is they added a tight end to the mix, and they ran the football more, and they had a more varied attack. And they fit it more to the players that they had. And they're going to build this system around Jaden Delora and what he does well. Really excited about that. And then they went out in their first recruiting class and signed a couple of outstanding tight end prospects. So I can't wait to see what Eric Morris does as offensive coordinator. In-state recruiting. I've already signed six kids. In In a small class, the initial class, they get another period here in a month, from the state of Washington. I think I read somewhere where that matches the number of in-state kids that Leach had in his last three classes combined. The effort just wasn't there from Leach. 
I love his demeanor, his personality, and the perception that he's already created of the program. He's articulate. He's confident. He has a look in his eye. He's the kind of guy you want to play for. He's young. He's vibrant. He seems to be really smart. He knew right away, I'm going to go out and get a defensive coordinator, a really good established veteran defensive coordinator, and I'm going to, I have to give up those reins because I have to run the program as a head coach and do it right. And then last but not least, the timing could not be better of this. There are opportunities in the Pac-12 North that haven't existed in a long time. With Mario Cristobal leaving for Miami and a relative unknown assistant coach heading over from the SEC to take over the Oregon program. Are they the behemoth that they've been in the past? Well, the Utah Utes don't think so. We don't know how good that guy's going to be as a coach. We don't know if they're going to continue their great recruiting. UW, I think Kalen, Kalen DeBoer from Fresno State was a really solid hire, and everywhere he's gone, his offenses have performed really well. But two years ago, it looked like the UW program was on its way to being a perennial powerhouse. Do we feel that way now? Do we feel that way about Stanford or Cal? Oregon State's made some nice strides. They were competitive last year. But do we feel like they're they're a team that's going to be a year-in, year-out contender for the North? I don't know. There's an opportunity there. So I, I'm really excited about Jake Dickert. I'm excited about how he is going to represent the program because we're going back almost 20 years now where that's been a struggle. Even going back to Paul Wolf, I loved the idea of that hire at the time because he was a kook. He was from my class. I knew him a little bit. Like, he played on those Erickson teams. He had a lot of success at Eastern. His kids graduated, all that. But he was kind of a... I don't even know the right word. He was kind of aloof. Like, he didn't exactly project any kind of dynamic qualities when he was standing at the podium representing the organization or the, the university. And then you get into Mike Leach and, and, you know, we all know how goofy he could be sometimes. And sometimes that was fun and brought and positive attention to the university and sometimes not. He had some weird political beliefs, and, and his on-field decisions were weird. He had a he had a cockiness that bordered on narcissism sometimes, and that was off-putting after a while. And then Rolovich, in the way he just fumbled that whole opportunity, that he was willing to throw the university under the bus for his own personal gain. I think Jake Dickert is genuine and sincere when he says that Pullman is a perfect fit for him. I think when you look at his resume and his and his lifetime and, and his family life and all of that, it all lines up. Not saying he's going to be there forever. He could be Tony Bennett. He could have a couple great years and get offered an SEC job, and I wouldn't blame him for that. But I think there's an opportunity here to really establish a culture at WSU, and win football games in the meantime. And I'm excited about that. What does 2022 have in store for the show? <laughs> um, this, is a, a, this is an easy answer. It's a lazy answer. Maybe we shall see. Right? Doing a show each and every week isn't really feasible. Uh, my work life is demanding. When I'm not working, I have a social life that I like to try to maintain and people I like to spend time with. I have a family that now that I live in the city it isn't just right down the road anymore. and I have other goals and things I want to achieve this year as well. And sometimes, honestly, unless someone comes along and wants to pay me to do this, when you do weekly shows, 
it becomes a little repetitive, doesn't it? And so what I intend to do is, is to do shows as they are warranted, either because there's big news or because I have a strong opinion about something that's happening one way or another. And so uh, no firm commitments, but off the top of my head, I think you can expect to see a show every couple of weeks that the Emerald, C Emerald City Sportscast will appear 25 to 30 times in 2022. And maybe more than that, and once I get my studio back up to snuff and I get my mixer back and I'm able to fly all this in live, uh, maybe more often, but more so what I was doing a couple of months ago with some shorter, um, some shorter episodes, more so in reaction to things that had just happened. Trades, signings, coaching moves, reaction to a particular game that that was impactful um that's kind of where i'm at so in the meantime thanks for uh rejoining me uh again happy new year hope you achieve all your goals in 2022 please subscribe on whichever podcast platform you listen to me on if you haven't done that already then you'll get notifications when i do a show um and certainly you can reach out to me either through twitter at seahawks forever you can email EmeraldCitySportsCast at gmail.com. DM me through whatever social media platform you follow me on. Give me your questions, your comments, things you'd like me to talk about, suggestions. We will have guests on the show again uh, once baseball fires up again. Um, Jason Churchill will join me. We'll get Eric on a few times during the year because that's just always fun. And uh, Chris Clough will join us again at some point when we get into the offseason because he's always great to talk to about those things. Never short on opinions. Um, in the meantime, take care of you and yours. And always remember, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're always right. We'll see you next time.